So yesterday I had like these gigantic piles. My wife and I bought this foreclosure for a house. And we had all these piles of limbs that uh, Adam, one of the guys here, came in and he trimmed up my trees. Gigantic piles. So we had like 10 guys show up yesterday. And we stuck them in this wood chipper that we rented. A wood chipper is awesome, by the way. And I just want to show you something. Ready? Still got them all. Still got them all. Now, but uh, there are some pieces of oak, if you guys want them, in the back, right at the back door. Jason's truck is there. There's some pieces of oak back there. So if you want some on the way out the back, just grab some, throw them in your car, take them home with you. You're welcome. Our gift to you. Don't say we never gave you anything. Uh, some of them kind of are. Well, it got rained on, but yeah. Uh, if you are new, welcome to Element. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion. And on this app, you click on Live. It'll bring Element up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get the sermon notes. You'll get the questions on the back of the sermon notes. And you'll get all the verses that we go through this morning. Uh, one last thing to tell you before we get going is Easter services are about a month away. And what we're going to do is we're still going to have the standard 9.30 and 11 o'clock services, but we're going to do an early service at 8.15 because typically the room gets packed on Easter. And so if you are like, I don't like it when the room's packed, come at 8.15 and it'll be early. I'll be cranky. The, the band... <laughs> The band will do uh, you know, a little more subdued music if you're into that, and hopefully you can have a good time. And if you're going to uh, help out in the children's department, you might actually want to come then. That'll be a good thing for you to come in as well. Uh, and then we're going to do a Good Friday service, the Friday before Easter at 7.30 at night. Uh, good Friday services we design for people who are believers, who are Christians. It's, if you're thinking, oh, I want to invite a friend of mine that's never gone to church in their life, don't bring them to Good Friday. They're going to be like, I have no idea what's going on. Right, okay, it's a time for believers to reflect on what Christ has done for us. We typically beat you up just a little bit, so Good Friday, 7.30. I want you guys to stand to me for the reading of God's Word. This is Acts chapter 5, verse 20, and it says this, Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. Let's pray. Father, this morning we as a people ask that we would begin to understand the full message of new life, that we would trust you for what life is supposed to entail and we would live and walk in the ways that you call us to, to truly be your people. Amen. Have a seat. So we are going through the most depressing book of the Bible. It's called Lamentations. People think this is my effort to continually try and kill the attendants at Element. Uh, as, as part of Lamentations, we've actually in the hallway uh, made this prayer wall. We kind of thought, you know, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And so what we did is put this prayer wall up, and you guys can write laments or prayers or praises, whatever you want. Write them on little cards and then actually roll them up and stick them in the wall somewhere. It's, it's kind of something ancient but something modern, trying to give you something to go along with the whole series that we're doing. Now, Lamentations is kind of like a trek through sorrow and, ref and reflection. And we're doing it specifically before we get to Easter because Easter is joy and celebration. But before that, we want to take a trek through this sorrow and reflection. There are some things in Lamentations that seem so poignant and some things we just don't understand. In chapter 1, we talked about our culture of denial, how we don't like to lament, how we try to suppress and hold everything in. In chapter 2, we talked about how God heals us, and He does this through His Son, but also through the community that He places us within. Now today, might it seem like to you like we're going backwards a little bit because we're going to start in chapter 1, but we'll eventually get to chapter 3. 
Lamentations is a collection of five poems written in the 500s BC when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. The core leadership of Jerusalem at this point was either killed or drawn into exile. So all of these poems that come out of carnage and mayhem and mass destruction. Open your Bibles to the book of Lamentations, if you have them with you. There are various characters in these poems that come and go, and I want you to see who these are. The first character, he is very stoic. He's like a reporter that stands off objectively saying what has happened. And in chapter 1, verse 1, the narrator comes in and he starts like this. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who was, once, who was great among the nations. She, who was queen among the provinces, has now become a slave. Now, this is what is called classic form. He takes the city and he personifies it. God's city burned to the ground is like a widow. When we suffer sometimes, we change literal into metaphor. Like if somebody gossips about you, you don't, we don't say, well, they said this and it was wholly inexcusable. It was deemed an inappropriate use of language by me. We don't say stuff like that. What we say is, they stabbed me in the back. We take literal and we turn it to metaphor. When pain is great, we move to metaphor. This is what the narrator just did. In verse 2, the narrator stacks another metaphor and he says, Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all lovers there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. So verse 1, she's like a widow. Verse 2, she's like a lover who can't find an embrace. A lover who can't find comfort. In verse 5, he says this, her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. So in verse 1, she's like a widow. Verse 2, she's like a lover who can't find an embrace, a lover who cannot find comfort. In verse 5, she's like a mother whose children have been torn away from her and hauled away. That's the first voice. Then a second voice shows up, and this is the voice of the woman, the voice of the city. Nine and a half verses, the narrator goes on, and he talks about all this metaphor upon metaphor, and then a city speaks in verse 9, and she says, Look, O Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. She says, God, can you see what I'm going through? The narrator comes back in in verse 11 and says this. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. So it's so bad that they can't get food. People are taking their last little bit of things that they own and trading them for a meal. And the woman launches in again after this. Each time she speaks a little bit longer than the time before. It's like her trauma lets her only get out a few words, but as she talks to the narrator, she is able to get more and more out. She becomes more and more open. In verse 12, she says this. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me? I, mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. You go through something terrible, you don't know how to cope, and then you talk to someone and someone finally understands, they get it. You don't necessarily want somebody to fix it, just someone to witness and empathize with what you're going through. I mean, the narrator is like, she had it coming, she did this, metaphor after metaphor after metaphor, and then something amazing happens in chapter 2, verse 11. Till now, the narrator has been detached, simply being a reporter, but in chapter 2, verse 11, something changes, and this is what he says. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. Now, I don't know if you see what just happened to the narrator. He has actually entered into the pain of the woman. 
I don't mean, if you ever watch the news, you, you have a reporter, they got like a windbreaker and a logo on there, and they're giving the news as they arrive on the scene. It's like, hey, 3596 Skyway Drive, and the rain's coming, and the whole building's leaking, and it's amazing. We're 36. No, okay, whatever. Uh, it, it's like, hey, we're at 123 Jones Street where the fire has just gutted the place. Children are being let out, holding their favorite toys. Oh, here's the mother. Hey, how do you feel? You know, and everything has just been torn away and torched. And they do this, and it's like, I don't understand how they can do that. Have you seen it? Right? It's on at 5 because at 6 some new trauma is going to happen. Oh, here's the dad. Hey, how do you feel that your whole wedding album has gone up in smoke? How do you feel about that? It's like, what? I mean, I, I watch this. I think, how, how can they do that and remain so calm? you got the conversation between Windbreaker logo guy and the guy that's all made up in the studio, all nice and pretty. And he's like, so what's the nature of the Burns victim's injuries? I'm like, really? It's just, it's just so strange. This has been a narrator so far, standing very far off. The sea, the city has fallen. People are begging for one meal. In chapter 2, verse 11, 30 verses in, the narrator cannot contain himself any longer, and he melts, and he says, Ah, oh, my heart, it is in torment. And he gets up uh, to walk over next to her. He is caught up in her pain. Metaphorically, he drops the mic and stands next to the family who is in torment. He can no longer stand at a distance when he says these words. My eyes fail me from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground. Now in chapter 3, what happens is a new character shows up. In chapter 3, verse 1, this character shows up and he says this. I am the man who has seen affliction. Now the word here for man is the word geber. Everybody say geber. So instead of saying, hey, dude, what's up? Go, Geber, what's up? You can just kind of use it like that. Geber in modern Hebrew is the word for sir. It's strong, masculine, it's brave. Here, in this time, it would have been someone who was a defender of the weak, someone who, a defender of women, a defender of children. It's a military term. It's also in verses 27, 35, 39. The woman is like, does anybody see this, what I'm going through? And the narrator is stacking metaphor after metaphor, but in chapter 3, the Geber shows up. And he is fresh from the destruction. He's like a soldier who has escaped with the clothes on his back. And he rushes in to say, I was there. I have seen the affliction. The Hebrew word to see is synonymous with the word to experience. He has experienced the destruction. And then what he does is he launches into his rant starting in verse 2. He has driven me away and made me walk in the darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Now I know what you're thinking. You're like, who invited this guy? We're already depressed. This guy shows up. Debbie Downer just comes to the party. This is terrible. It's like I was watching a TV show last week, and they had Johnny Cash's version of Hurt by Nine Inch Nails on it. I'm thinking, oh, that's like this guy come in. You're not singing it depressing enough, Trent Reznor. I'm going to come in and sing it for you. That's this guy as he shows up. It's like it's worse than you could imagine. God doesn't hear me. God shuts me out. In verse 15, he says this. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. I mean, on and on he goes like this. He has broken my teeth with gravel. 
I mean, anybody eat dirt as a kid? Like we all did, right? A little bit? Yeah, okay. My, my dog is a puppy. She still does that day and then throws it up later. But this is what, we know what this is like. He has broken my teeth with gravel. I mean, he is like, you are questioning God? I've seen the destruction. And he certainly is not there. Then he starts to blame God for all of the destruction. But he then has a change of gears. In verse 21, he starts like this. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. I mean, he starts with, God has broken my teeth with gravel. God has pierced my heart. But he ends with, but I still have hope. God's mercy is true. God can be trusted. There may yet be hope. You look at it and think, well, what is it? Gever, are you for God or are you against God? I mean, we would have questions for this guy. Are you a doubter or do you have strong faith? Is God good or do you see him as a destructive tyrant? Kathleen O'Connor writes this, When you meet the Geber, it is someone with entangled theology. Hope and horror stand side by side. Hope and honesty stand side by side. Hope and contradiction stand side by side. Now, if we took part one and part two, we mixed them together side by side, it would look like this. God has pierced my heart. God is good. God has driven me away. God's love is great. God has broken my teeth with gravel. God is compassionate. God has trampled me in the dust. God is good. I mean, how many of you have ever been through something in your life and like, oh yeah, I can relate to that? Anybody? Yeah. I mean, how many of us know exactly where the Geber state of mind is? I mean, many people in Christianity, they think that hope is the absence of all these other emotions. But the Geber has great hope, but it's mixed with his humiliation. He's like, I'm a laughingstock. It's mixed with his deprivation. I don't feel peace. It's mixed with bitterness, honesty, the horrors of life. All of these things sit with his hope. If you've ever thought, well, my hope doesn't really measure up because it sits with too many other things, well, that's probably real hope, true hope. This is the only place in the poems where someone steps up and says, I know there is a God and I know he is good, but it's mingled with all this other stuff. It's like a bar or a pub where they serve hope on tap. It's sitting at the bar playing cards is bitterness and doubt because it's just the way the fallen world is. I know a guy used to do church consulting, and he would come in and show a church, well, if you do letters A, B, and C, then God will have to do letters D, E, and F. I know it sounds like the letters B and S, how, how that works together. But, <laughs> but then one day he actually had kids of his own, and one of his kids was born with Asperger's syndrome. And all of a sudden his whole world changes, his view of God changes. I mean, he had hope, but now it's sat with questions and humility, and it made him much better at the job that he was doing. There are many traditions out there that make certainty into their God rather than trusting certainty to their God. And we must trust certainty to our God. Because when your certainty gets crushed, you look like the Geber. Frustration and questions all sit alongside hope. So there's a couple things I want you to leave here this morning with. Number one is this. I want you to notice the relationship between the narrator and the woman. These are the questions that can something be different. Will I always be this way? Is it always going to be this way? In chapter 1, verse 9, the narrator talks about the woman, and he says this. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. This is sexual euphemism in Hebrew. See, now you're all paying attention, right? Ooh, 
I heard the word. I'm paying attention now. She is the personification of Jerusalem, which is God's people. And they have gotten involved with other gods. So this marriage metaphor was an applied to them where the prophets came along and said, you have been unfaithful to your God. You are committing adultery. Stop or you will be sent away just like an unfaithful wife. In the Lamentations, that's exactly what is happening. The prophet says your promiscuity is hanging from your skirts. Her wayward sexuality is all over her. In the most vulgar sense, because this is very vulgar in the sense it says that you stink like sex. And it is not sex with your husband. It is adultery. That's what you smell like. And at first, the narrator's like, she had it coming. But then when the narrator moves from the place of distance and judgment, and he moves closer to her into the place of compassion, to sharing with her suffering, notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 13. He changes the tune and he says this. What can I say for you? With what can I compare you? O daughter of Jerusalem, to what can I liken you that I may comfort you? O virgin daughter of Zion. What does he call her? Virgin. Virgin. When he stands over here, he is like, slut. When he stands over here, he is like, virgin daughter. When he moves over and drops the mic and stands next to her, his total view changes. Now, to understand this, we have to talk about movies. Because okay? there's all kinds of movies out there. Netflix has like subcategory after subcategory. It's no longer any more action or comedy or documentary. It's like comedy action for people who like documentaries who are left-handed and born on Tuesday who love Steven Seagal. That's kind of how it works. Now, one category that we all know of movies has the same plot line. Every single movie starts off with a girl and a guy. The second word of this is flick, and the first word is... Chick. There you go. Guys, warning. You don't use the word chick unless followed up by flick unless you'll never get a date. So... You're welcome. Now, the greatest chick flick ever made, according to money that has been produced, is... Anybody know? Pretty Woman. It's like, wow, Pretty Woman. $463 million this movie has generated, and I have no idea how. Uh, now, when, when you see, I'm going to show you the ending of this movie, but in the ending of this, the narrator, the, the warrior doesn't show up and chop the bad guy's head off. This is how Pretty Woman ends.
Now this is supposedly high heart, high heart. That's how the movie ends. That that's it right there. So let's let's go with the plot line. Ready? Uh, what's her occupation in the beginning of the movie? Prostitute. And she and Richard Gere enter into a business relationship. If you know what I mean. As the movie progresses, the relationship becomes something else. It starts to change. By the end of the movie, uh, because you have no idea how it's going to end at the beginning, he starts to treat her less like a prostitute and more like a woman. Now, don't get all of your biblical truth in the movie Pretty Woman, please, okay? But there's an arc where she moves from being bought and sold into being loved and cherished. Now, at, at, the, at a part in the movie, Richard Gere like, pulls up and he calls her princess. I mean, you go from prostitute to princess. The movie and all the garbage that it is speaks to this deep need of people. Can I be something different than I have been? Can something fresh, can something renewing come to me? How about these words? Can I be reborn? Can I be born again? And Lamentation says, yes. You may ask, am I defined by my failures? Am I defined by my shortcomings? Do my sins determine who I am? Well, well yes. But God can bring something new to you. The narrator starts with this. Filthiness clung to her skirts. But he goes and he ends with this. O virgin daughter of Zion. This is the cry of lamentations and the cry of the human heart. The need for redemption, for Jesus to redeem us. Maybe you feel like a failure. God can speak new words over you. Maybe you were abused or you feel unworthy. God can speak new words over you as his loved child. Maybe you've been through a terrible divorce or a breakup. God can redeem you. Maybe you have an addiction where something defines you. God can speak new words and redefine you. Jesus' new words can always be spoken. The great truth of the gospel is that redemption can always be spoken. Open to Matthew chapter 9 in your Bibles. You see this in Jesus. He is always stepping into situations of humiliation and pain. In Matthew 9, you see a story that's told in several gospel accounts, and you only have so much room in different gospel accounts, and for most of them to put this in there is simply amazing. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 20. And it starts like this. It says, Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And most commentators will tell you that Matthew emphasizes 12 years to reference the shame and humiliation of Israel as a nation that came from 12 tribes. So she's been bleeding for 12 years. What this would do was what Mickey was called unclean. You would be unclean. In a culture that had hierarchy as its central motivation, they saw terms and things of clean and unclean. Who's in with God, who's without, who's holy enough, who's not. In this culture, they had been marginalizing people for centuries. This woman would be impure. She would not be able to go to the temple, not be able to hang out with their family and friends. She lives on the edges. She is all alone. And she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. And this is what he says. Take heart. And what's the word? Daughter. Take heart. Daughter. First century Jews would have a tribal consciousness. You are sons and daughters of Abraham. But if you were impure from like leprosy or bleeding for 12 years, you were out of the tribe. You broke the code. Jesus says, daughter. He redefines and we redraws the boundaries of the tribe. He says, you are in. You were pushed out. I will redeem you and I will bring you back in. Lamentations is an echo of how Jesus saw things. The same way the narrator turns and changes everything about the city's worth and value and identity. That our God does this for his children as well. He draws us and brings us in. 
before the narrator says this. Filthiness clung to her skirts. But now he says this. Virgin, daughter of Zion. That's what he says. The second thing I want you to notice is the first words that the woman speaks. Chapter 1, verse 9, she says this. Look, O Lord, on my affliction. Now this voice drives her throughout the book of Lamentations, throughout the rest of the poem. In verse 11, she says this. I am despised. In verse 12, she says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering? She doesn't want someone to give an answer. She just wants someone to see it. You don't need to fix it. Just show up and listen. She wants someone to acknowledge it. Sometimes when we acknowledge someone else's pain, it becomes the first step in their healing when someone sees it. So her questions are, can someone see? And eventually in chapter 3, two chapters later, the Geber shows up and he says, I am the man who has seen affliction. He has seen the affliction. For two chapters, can somebody see? And this guy shows up and said, I have seen. He can lament with her. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, it says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees everything. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is our God. He is one who has seen. He is the only one who has truly seen. The gospel is pronounced and very strong in the book of Lamentations. Now, we have covered three chapters over three weeks. And having this three-week separation, you don't really hear all the voices that you're supposed to be hearing at this point. So what I want you to do is hear what you're supposed to be seeing in the text. The first guy that shows up, he's the narrator. And in chapter 2, verse 13, he says this. Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? So he starts with your this. Your wound is as deep as the sea. And this is supposed to reverberate in the back of your mind you? as you read the rest your of it. Wound then the woman, chapter 2, verse 20, says this. Who can Look, O Lord, you? and consider. Your wound Whom have you ever treated like sea? this? Who Look, O Lord, and consider. Whom have you ever treated like this? So these voices are going Look, on. Lord, as you read the text, then the Geber shows up, chapter 3, verse like 29, this? and he says this. Look, O Lord, and consider. Whom have you ever treated like this? Look, O Lord, and consider. Whom have you ever treated like this? Look, O Lord, and consider. Whom have you ever treated like this? And these voices are like Stop! Because they're so loud and you can't get away from it. Now, does that noise sound like real life? Yeah, all the time, all the time. This is just like things really are. In the midst of this chaos, though, here's the question. Are they moving farther apart or closer together? Closer together. The disaster that they have gone through is bringing them closer together. In community that God brings, they're beginning to heal. Here's my other question. In the midst of this chaos, are they moving farther away from God or closer? Closer. The disaster is bringing them closer to Christ. 
I believe God works in situations just like this because this is where the gospel must step into to make some sense out of all the questions that we have. I mean, this chaos goes on for years before Christ and it's going on even to this day. And when you look at Lamentations, and seriously, how do these poems make it into Scripture? God never speaks. Nothing gets resolved. There may yet be hope is the closest that you get. There isn't, oh, it's all going to be okay. Jesus is going to show up to be a party later. None of that. I mean, how did it make it? Who was like, yeah, let's put that in there. That'll be great. Because the only guy who talks about God is the guy who says he makes you chew on gravel. That's the only guy. What a strange thing to put in a book that argues for the presence and existence of a good, personal, and true God. Unless... This actually shows the presence of God in one of the most brutal ways we could ever imagine. That despair may threaten to bury you, but you are still breathing. And that is a gift from God. And sometimes all of your theological answers will not be found because the pain causes you to be unable to see. And maybe that's the point, that you trust your certainty to your God. In Luke chapter 22, verses 41 to 45, Jesus is in a garden. He is praying before he is arrested and crucified. It says, He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cut from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel of heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When have you been in that much anguish? When he rose from prayer, he went back to his disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. This is why Hebrews 4 reminds us that we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. The most amazing thing about this cacophony of voices and lamentations is this something that God himself experienced, the messiness of what real life is. In the darkest place, there is yet hope. That is the beauty of the gospel. It calls to us in the most brutal and raw of situations and says God can bring redemption. Trust Christ with your life because there's no one else you can trust it to. Yes, God can bring you to eat gravel. Maybe he has to get your attention, but he also offers hope because he is a God who knows himself what it means to eat gravel of his own volition and choice. He is the only hope that we as a people have. We must trust our certainty to our God and not make certainty our God because He comes to redeem His people. This is why we come to communion every week because it reminds us that we have been moved from the place of sinner to the place of child. This is what communion is to remind us of, that we have been made new, that we have been given a new identity for those who believe and trust in Christ for that redemption where you take that cracker and you break it like his body was broken for us and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, reminding us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we can be made new and redeemed. There'll be some elders and deacons in the back. And if you need prayer, if you, have, if you live in this place of this cacophony of voices and you can't make sense of anything, if you have never submitted your life to Christ... You need to go back and pray with them and have an introduction to who Christ is because He wants to take you from the place where you are to the place of virgin daughter. That's what He wants to do. The band's going to come up. they do a couple songs. And as they do, before you take communion, just take a moment and ask God how He wants you to truly see the world around you. How that He has taken and moving you from the place 
of whatever it was over here to my loved child. We worship God through giving. These offering boxes on the side wall in the back, we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We give that opportunity every week because He has given so much to us. There's some food and stuff in the back. We even hid some so to make sure they're, they're still there after earlier. So you guys can get to know each other, spend some time with each other. Because again, as I told you last week, that God places, in, places us in certain communities for the purpose of healing. Yes, Jesus is the one that brings redemption. But then He places us in redeemed community in order to make that healing be what it's supposed to become. Where we enter into each other's lament and enter into each other's place of healing. Where we can be a people who move from judgment to a place of compassion where we see the world like Christ calls us to. Jesus is good. And He has called you to be new and made new. You no longer have to be who you have been. You can be something totally new. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as your people ask that we would understand this newness of life that you have so graciously given to us. For those in this room who have never trusted you, I ask that your strong voice of calling would be upon their hearts and you would bring them to know the saving grace of who you are and that they too can be made new. Father, for those of us in this room who, who believe, who trust you for everything in our lives, I ask that you would also help us to understand that truth, that we can be made new. No matter how much the enemy stands up and says, no, you can't. You're who you have always been. You will never be anything different. That you, as our God, has, have called us to something new. And you have already made us into that's something new. And that we need to trust you to be that. So we walk in your strength. Father, thank you for being a God who doesn't leave us in a place without hope. That no matter where we are, we can say these words that there may yet be hope because there is. And that all of our certainty would be tied up in you. Because you are the only God of true certainty. Thank you for saving us and redeeming us and being a father to all of us orphans who so need a great and gracious father to love us and pull us into something new. Amen.